by your spirit through your word. We ask that you would illumine your word this morning and teach us those things that you would have us know. We ask all these things in the matchless name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it's very good to be before you. Uh, occasionally, Jeff lets me preach. He really likes to preach, and he's really good at preaching. Um, he really is a good pastor teacher. He's, he's not here. He's probably not even watching, so I don't get anything. He doesn't pay me extra for, for saying these sorts of things. But understand that when you have somebody who preaches in a way that's confrontational to the sin that is in your heart in particular or in our hearts in general, that is an extremely rare thing to happen in a church. We have thousands of churches across the United States of America, and most people will bless and consecrate your way of deciding to do things because that is what draws crowds, to give people what tickles their ears. And, and you know, what we started doing in the 1980s was we started asking people what they wanted, spiritually immature people. You ask spiritually immature people what they want and then provide it in a buffet and you draw a crowd. It's actually quite easy to do. What's harder to do is to go into the Word of God and speak confrontationally to the sin of our particular hearts. And so you'll find, <laughs> and I find, that Jeff is confrontational. He's confrontational with the Word of God. But in Hebrews, it says that he will stand in greater danger of judgment because he's responsible for what's going on in your soul and whether there's a confrontation, whether he's stirring you up to godliness with the Word of God, whether he's forming you into the likeness of Christ uh, by what he's doing. So you see that uh, in 16 years of ministry here in Huntsville, uh, you see the crowds that Jeff has drawn. <laughs> the people who stay for confrontational use, uses of the Word of God, for people who stick around for that, you are Gideon's army. You are the people that God is calling to do what's next because not everybody wants to participate. Everybody wants to come to a church plant uh, when you start planting a church, especially if they're cultural Christians. We have a lot of that in the southeast. Everybody comes uh, to church to, to passively be recipients of whatever the church has to offer. And then they'll go up the street if what your church is offering doesn't have what the church up the street has. It's very consumer-driven, and it's not what it should be, which is, where am I called to offer my gifts in particular, as a sacrifice of praise in this congregation. And so in our scripture for this morning, there's some really interesting things going on in Absalom's rebellion. And you see, in Absalom's rebellion, you see quite a number of things that we can draw as parallels between Absalom's behavior and the Benjamite perspective on how David came to power. You see this perspective quite a lot in how people outside the faith view Western Christians. 
They view us as the dominant culture. They view us as people who were responsible for the horrifying crusades. Uh, There's this move afoot to say that every Christian in the West was just a money-hungry, land-grabbing, libertarian American. And there's a rewriting of the history of people who carved out of the wilderness a place for themselves, having had to flee Europe. It's not a clean history, but it's also a little more nuanced than people let on. So when you look at Absalom's behavior in this rebellion story, you see that he has watched his father without learning the substance of who his father is. So remember, Absalom grew up in David's court while, Absalom, while David was sleeping with Bathsheba, calling out a hit on uh, her husband, and then marrying her. Absalom is watching all this. Remember, Solomon is born after all of that as the fruit of that. And so Absalom is looking at the situation, understanding that he may have to seize power. He may not get to be the king, even though he's the oldest son, he's the best looking, he's everybody's favorite, he's got leadership ability, he's obviously a very good politician. But we see this same problem in the church where people imitate form rather than substance. They say, we've seen it done this way before, so they assume we ought to do it that way again without realizing that the substance behind what they've seen is different than just an imitation of form. They don't distill the principles from their previous situation and understanding how their faith was operative in a previous context or the faith of others. Many of our leaders inside and outside the church do this. They're like Absalom in the gate. Have you ever had an Absalom in the gate? In your church before? People through whom uh, the enemy of God slithers in and begins a whispering campaign. I've had this happen to me. And there's a great book by a guy named Gene Edwards called A Tale of Three Kings. And it's a short book, vignettes on Saul, David, and Absalom. And the character, character of each of those men, the character of their leadership. You know, what was Saul? Well, God gave Israel over to the, what they thought they want. We think we want a king like everybody else. We want to be like the other nations. And so God gave them a mirror to their problem, their spiritual problem. And we see, and we've walked through the story of Saul, and we know that Saul was in it, for himself. And he became afraid that God might take the kingdom from him because of his disobedience. And so he tried to protect himself from that. There was a very sophisticated defense system Saul was setting up. He even woke up uh, Samuel after his death using a witch. And then we see Absalom in contrast to David. Just like Saul, Absalom is a fraud. He likes the trappings of power, 
instead of learning his father's humility like Solomon does, instead of learning the substance of his father's faith, which is why God chose David in the first place, Absalom wants his father's position. These are the temptations that are that come to the door of each of our hearts. The temptation to like money and stuff a little too much, to like notoriety and celebrity a little too much, and to like positional authority a little bit too much. The great thing about Gene Edwards' book, A Tale of Three Kings, is that it starts off in its introduction uh, about youngest children. And youngest children like this. Raise your hand if you're a youngest child. Uh, only a handful of us. Wow. Uh, I thought there'd be more of us uh, in active revolt and rebellion against older children. But I was reading the birth order book one time, and I skipped ahead to chapter 9, and chapter 9 said, uh, I want you to know uh, I'm on to all of you youngest children. I know you skipped the first eight chapters to read the chapter about yourself. But it talks about how David is chosen after much more accomplished, experienced, uh, better-looking, taller people were selected. Why is this? Why is there a difference between Saul, David, and Absalom? What is distinct about how David rolls? When you look at our scripture for today, you might think what's on display is Absalom's rebellion. But... You know, we we take the Bible uh, literally where it's meant to be taken literally, Um, but Absalom is an example of what not to do, right? So we shouldn't follow his his example. So what's really on display in this text? The contrast, right, between Absalom and David. How does David roll? There's, there's just a, a line in our scripture for today that is uh, 100% indicative of who David is as a person. When the Ark of the Covenant comes out to him, what does he say? If I find favor in the Lord's eye, he says, take the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, He will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. That verse is what's on display in this text. The rest of the story is context. It's about what not to do. When I was researching this passage for this sermon, it was really funny because I was looking up um, Hushai the Archite, and, and one, of the, one of the links that came up first was from the CIA. So here I am preparing for a sermon, clicking on a CIA link to see what the CIA thinks about this passage. And it's all about Hushai the Archite and uh, an intelligent, David's intelligence operation being the first recorded example of an intelligence operation. And it shows how... Um, Hushai the Archite uh, slithered in there and spoiled the, uh, the council of uh, Ahithophel 
who was a, gave wise counsel. Let's go attack David when he's at his weakest. And Hushai the archite was just like, no, let's, let's you know, David's a, a fighting man. He's been in the caves before. The people with him are mighty men. Let's go get everybody and just with a massive force, let's, uh, let's go get him. And everybody liked that counsel better. And one of the things that uh, the CIA said about this particular uh, passage in Scripture was that uh, the advice of Ahithophel was, let me go after David. And, and one of the concerns was, nobody else will get the glory if you're the one who goes out after David. But they liked the other advice of Hushai the archite because everybody's going to get a little piece of the glory. And this was a CIA example from Scripture of how to do intelligence operations. It just blew my mind that, uh, you know, taxpayer-funded, somebody in the CIA is studying the Scriptures looking for uh, intelligence and counterintelligence operations. Everybody loves a leader who gives them a little piece of the glory. Everybody loves a pastor who coddles their own position on their own grievances. Just look at our recent political history. Everything has transitioned from looking from the, at the substance of a resume to, I feel your pain. Who do you feel like feels your pain? Which one of these guys or gals really feels your pain? Really thinks what you think? really wants to do what you want to do. Instead of looking at the hard decisions in a position of leadership and making a decision based on the substance of wisdom, they make us feel better without necessarily giving us the medicine that we need. That's how one steals the hearts of the people. That's what we mean when we say someone is a good politician. That's our connotation. Somebody coddles people, what Larry Crabb calls relationships of consolation. Larry, Larry Crabb, the famous Christian psychiatrist, talks about relationships of consolation, where we're looking for somebody to agree with our perspective on our own grievances. I've been wronged. Here's what should happen next. Because now that I've been wronged, I'm entitled to getting my way. Or would we be more like David, who'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord? If the Lord is doing something else to advance his kingdom, he's walked with the Lord before. He's chastened by the Lord's correction of his sin. And he has seen the kingdom rent from somebody else's hand and given to somebody else. That somebody else happens to be him in the previous case. But who's to say the Lord hasn't chosen someone else? So what you see David doing in this moment, instead of thinking of himself as entitled to the throne of a temporal kingdom, he believes in God's promises and he puts himself, heart and soul, into the hands of the real king of kings. And this is what's on display in this particular passage. David's humility. And he's gotten that medicine before from Nathan the prophet, the medicine that we need, the confrontation 
with the Word of God. Would we rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord? As David clearly says, would we be okay with the Lord trotting out our sin in particular and making it public, a public spectacle? David's sin made Holy Scripture as an example of what not to do. But what's really on display in that story is the glory of God, the redemption of God, the mercy of God, the character of God. We see this a lot in the parables in the New Testament. We get this all wrong. Take, take for example, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. We think that is about not being a uh, Pharisee. We think that's about being more like the person who stands at the back beating their breast. So you know what we do? We, may, we turn that into a whole liturgy, and we turn ourselves into pharisaical people following a liturgy of standing at the back and beating our breast. We miss the point, and the point is, at the end of that parable, God's mercy is on display. And the Pharisee, in their heart, would say, you're not allowed to do that to God. When he says justified over a tax collector who doesn't deserve it, God's character is on display in that parable. And God's character is on display in this story about David's humility because David is one who walks with God in humility. What does the Lord require of you? What does Micah say? Anybody remember? Love mercy and walk humbly with your God. To put oneself, yourselves, your soul, your bodies, your resources in the hands of the Lord instead of avoiding uh, the, the, the making public of your sin, you can be a redemption story. I can't tell you how often I used to see this kind of thing in Anglican church plants when I was a network leader in the neighboring Anglican mission network next to Jeff's, how Jeff and I became friends. This is Anglican church plants that are full of the yeast of the unmentionable former denomination. People who were puffed up about their own outsized sense of their own worthiness to be in leadership. People whose faith did not match their reasoning for them believing themselves to be the ones in authority. By reason of tenure, my grandparents founded this church. Or by reason of giving, we give more than the others, so what we say should go. Or by reason of simply being in the position they're in as treasurer or something, hypothetically, uh, Brenda. Um, but you get into a position and you start thinking, well, I know better than everybody else. And this sort of pride that puffs up the bearer in whom this yeast is operative, well, these are the things that allow the enemies of God to slither in, start a whispering campaign, and cause an Absalom in the gate kind of rebellion. When we think that we are entitled to anything in God's kingdom, we are in the wrong as far as the scriptures are concerned. Do we understand this? It, the church belongs to Jesus Christ, and he may oust me and Jeff and replace us with somebody else who can do more and better things for the kingdom, 
And you know what Jeff and I should say if that happens? It's well with our soul. Just like David says in this passage, maybe the Lord will lead me back into the city in triumph. Maybe not. Let him do what seems good to him. Are we able to say this with integrity in our lives? Let him do what seems good to him. Let him let the righteous one have his way because I am not covered in righteousness, I'm covered in sin and shame until he covers me with his righteousness. So I have nothing in which to boast. Nothing at all. And I'm not entitled to anything. Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the sculptor. I'm just clay. We are just dust and we will return to the dust. But into that jar of clay that we are, you know what? God has poured the treasures of His kingdom, His own character. He's poured His own Holy Spirit into us to revitalize us. But you know what? That life in Christ, that resurrected life on the other side of this story of our rebellion against God, which is what this story really is about when you get down to brass tacks. It's about us being Absalom in the gate, us wanting our way, us liking the trappings of the things that other people have and wanting those things for ourselves. And David knows a few things about what God can and can't do. You know why? Because David has a few principles that he follows. And it was interesting, uh, interesting how the Lord puts things in your path when you're preparing a sermon. Because it turns out that even if the, the speaker and all that, uh, God wants to feed his people. So remarkable things happen when you open his word. And that is one of the things that David, you, you can see in the life of David, he stays close to God's word. Now, he wrote most of the Psalms. And a lot of the scriptures that we're reading for today even are about him. And he didn't have the benefit of all that while he was living it, right? We have the benefit of way more inspired word of God. We have the benefit of the New Testament. We have the benefit of knowing who the son of David is and what he will do. But David didn't. But David clearly knew who the Lord was because God's character was already revealed in the Scripture available to him, and he stayed close to it. He stayed close to wisdom. How do you think that Solomon came about to have so much wisdom? Yes, God provided, but what was Solomon writing about in the Proverbs? Probably observed behavior of his father. Our fathers stand, our earthly fathers just stand so largely on the landscape, a good father or bad, so largely on the landscape of our memories and personal history and who, who we've become, the culture they cultivated around us that formed us into thinking certain ways and valuing certain things, whether we're in rebellion or in um, conjunction with the values of our parents. It's critical that we stay close to Scripture. Solomon wrote a bunch of Scripture observing his father's wisdom in his behavior. You ever notice that uh, uh, kids 
repeat what, you're, what you uh, say sometimes, but they really watch what you do. We become like, we start bearing the family likeness in the culture that we've cultivated for ourselves. So if our churches have become these massive places where everybody gets their way, everybody's fears are coddled, everybody's grievances are heard, and the assistant pastor says things in the gate like, oh, if the senior pastor were just as smart as me, we'd be doing it this way instead of that way. You ever been in a church like that? We have to stay close to Scripture. It's where God reveals His character. It's nourishment for our souls. It's food. It's living word. It's going to, uh, as we say in the army about some things, uh, it's going to punch you in the mouth all over again. When you read Scripture, it's living word. It's nourishment for our souls. David clearly stayed close to Scripture stayed close to the revealed character of the God of his forefathers and mothers. He knew the Lord. And he allowed the Lord to know him, to be intimate with him, to speak to him in the caves, to speak to him while he was in exile. Even though he had been promised to be the king of the kingdom, he was in exile. Have you ever looked at your circumstances and looked at God's promises and said, uh, there's a distance here, Lord. I have an idolatry. This is public confession. I have an idolatry of circumstances to my own liking. And I will maneuver like the people you see in the Scriptures. That's what's happening in my flesh. Woe is me. I need my flesh crucified with Christ so that I can live that resurrected life on the other side of my redemption. So David allowed the Lord to know him, be intimate with him, speak to him in the caves, speak to him while he was in exile. And this brings up prayer. Scripture, prayer. It's so critical that we stay close to God and to each other in prayer, that we become houses of prayer in our homes, that we teach our children how to pray and relate to God in a prayer closet, and that we become a house of prayer in our congregation. Jesus said, my father's house will be a house of prayer. And he was quoting the scriptures, which he knew. And you see Jesus modeling this in his own life, even though he's the second person of the Trinity, in and of himself. You see him stealing time with the Father, being refreshed in the word, even though he's the one through whom all things came into being. You see Jesus modeling this. He demonstrated his need for his Father, his intimacy with the Father, his knowledge of the Scriptures. He spent time in his Father's house learning and then teaching. And he walked in close proximity to the rest of the sheep of his Father's pasture. And this brings up biblical community and accountability. Are we in the Scriptures? If not, we're starving ourselves. We have a spiritual bulimia, some of us. We come get our scriptures on Sundays, and then we spend the rest of the week living as the rest of the world lives. But knowing God and being known by God, scripture, prayer, in the context of forgiving, merciful, hospitable community, an accountable community, 
where there is repentance, which requires confrontation and conviction of sin. Repentance, but also forgiveness. Because John came preaching a gospel of the forgiveness of sins. Reconciliation, because we know we can't be creditors to other people if we've been forgiven of so great a debt. But we live in a libertarian, every man to his own tent. What part do we have with fill-in-the-blank affiliation, just like in the times that we're talking about in our scriptures today? Every time someone gets angry at something or isn't enabled to feel good about just how they are and what they think, we have a schism, and we call this freedom. But it's actually slavery. Anytime we feel entitled to do as we please without consulting anyone or anybody, without accountability or being under authority, if you're in a church where this type of behavior is enabled by the leadership, get out. You're in a pit of vipers. Have you seen how God's enemy overplays his hand every time? Like Hushai the Archite speaking among Absalom's advisors, giving false advice and undermining wise counsel, the enemy of God speaks what is false in the reasonable tones of NPR reporters. Tickling ears, coddling entitlements, fingering old wounds, causing faith to fester and intimacy with God and each other to be disrupted. We see these relationships of consolation all over social media. We don't really want discourse or to know and be known. We want to console ourselves with people who agree with us. Here's the thing, though. The most loving God thing God can do is to replace our idolatries with himself. And in that moment, it feels terrible. It feels like a tearing within our soul because we've wandered off like lost sheep, caught ourselves in the thicket. And it feels better if we just don't move. When the shepherd comes, he speaks to us with loving and soothing tones. He knows there will be pain, but he also knows that there will be true freedom and love on the other side of this painful experience of getting free from the things that used to help us take the edge off in the past. And so he confronts us about our situation like a good shepherd would. And once free, he rubs the ointment of his love in our wounds. And when we try to run off, he thumps us with his rod of, of his scripture, pulls us back into accountable community with the crook of his staff. And so the question for our souls is, why do we run and hide, O oh my soul? Why do I blame my circumstances on the Lord when it's my sin or the sin of others, and usually both, that got me here? And look at what David does. That is what is really on display here. David's humility. Let the Lord do what seems right to him. Before we close, I want, you to, give, want to give you the five smooth stones of David's life. And this came up uh, in my feed from YouVersion, which is a Bible app. While I was preparing for this sermon, it was so cool. I was like, that is exactly what I'm getting at. Uh, here, here's other Christians saying the same thing. This is great. Maybe the Spirit is at work. Here are the five smooth stones of David's life. Find wisdom in God's Word. That's where you get your wisdom. Not the prevailing wisdom of the day, not the conventional wisdom of your profession, but God's Word. 
and in the salvation history revealed within. And then, secondly, enjoy conversations with God. Know and be known. Prayer. Connect in biblical community. And if it's biblical, there's going to be confrontation. There's going to be accountability. There's going to be love and mercy and grace and reconciliation in a way that reveals the character of God. And then honor God in worship and invest in God's kingdom. And let's understand that this is how we take down the giants of our day, walking before God with humility and basing our activities on outsized faith in our limitless God. Let's pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this opportunity to open your word to see the humility of King David, whose throne and house you established, not an earthly kingdom, not a kingdom of this world, but an everlasting kingdom. And we can't help but say, Lord, we long for the government to be on your shoulders. We pray that you would govern our lives. We place our hope, ourselves, our souls, our bodies, our faith, wholly and fully in you. Amen.